In a world dominated by film geeks, there's only one show, and that's The Film File, episode 109. Stand by for action. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Began. And thank you for joining us for another week of film geekery. And if that's not a word, then it should be. And I'm going to petition, I'm going to sign out one of those petitions on the internet that we all sign and nothing ever happens. Andy, how have you been? I, I, I'm on a week off work at the moment. Yeah, yes. you. Get you. Um, and I really needed it. I was start, really starting to flag on my last couple of days. But um, I've started my week pretty good film-wise. I've seen a lot. Oh, a stop. Lot. I just, you're just embarrassing <laughs> me. But um, I, I also, on my first day off, I got an email invite to uh, the Spider-Man online 60th anniversary event on March the 16th. Get you. Um, I didn't. Well, I'm a subscriber of Marvel Unlimited. So Marvel Unlimited subscribers, there was a limited amount put to one side. So literally the email dropped in the inbox and I straight away RSVP'd and secured my place in there. And it's an evening. I mean, they say an evening of Q&A retrospective and look at future of your favorite wall crawler. 1 a.m. in the morning for people in the UK. I will be logging on on the 16th going into the 17th to see names such as uh, Dematius Straczynski, Ramita Jr., Casada, Ramos, Slot, mm, mm, Slot. I've got <laughs> uh, <laughs> he won't Nick, remember you. Nick Lowe, Sebulski, and so many more in a Q&A talking about their love of the character because it's 60 years since the character Fantastic. of Spider-Man. Do you want to know how I discovered Spider-Man? My origin story? Uh, what did, did you look behind the bath and he crawled out? <laughs> yeah, I was pinned by a radioactive comic book. <laughs> I, was, I was into comics from... <laughs> The moment, apparently, the first my first reading was, was comics. I always loved comics. And I, I collected comics from being a wee, wee lad, starting off with, you know, real proper kid stuff. And then, because I was a big fan of all things Jerry Anderson, and I've been on a real Jerry Anderson thing for the last week, which I'll, I'll mention after. And I uh, always, got, always got comics. And then a neighbour of mine did, like, a yard sale, and sold off lots and lots of the British version of of, um, of, of Marvel, the the weekly mm. uh, Spider Mans, and I and I bought for like five p three three uh, British Spider Mans, and it, I remember it so clearly because it was the classic cover, the John Romita cover of the Green Goblin pulling Peter Parker, well Spider Man unmasked through the sky. And I was hooked from that moment. And I read those three issues and I was absolutely hooked. And that was the beginning of my love of Spider-Man. And then subsequently around the same time, Marvel released what was called Marvel Treasury Editions, which were these huge oversized reprint books. And the first one was Spider-Man. And uh, I must have been about nine or ten, eight, nine or ten. Uh, and, and I was really in. And I, one image that always stays with me was... Uh, it was the classic Steve Ditko, half Peter Parker face, half Spider-Man mm. face. I, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I've been a fan ever since. Yeah, once I've seen this uh, Q&A, obviously I'll, I'll feed back on it on the show as to um, what was covered. Because we're going to be talking about like the past of Spider-Man, the current direction that it's going in, and the future ideas that they're all throwing out and where they get their ideas from. There's also a chance for those who have RSVP'd to submit a question for the Q&A. So I'm trying to think up like a question that... Um, no one else would have come up with. Oh yeah, that's a that's a hard one. I, I I'm never. This very question good at... goes out to Dan Slot. Why did you block me on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, no one else thought of that one, but maybe they will. Um, you know, I think the thing about comics and you know just just 
we've mentioned this before is you know if you don't like a direction of a book for 40 issues it don't don't worry at some point it'll change back and yeah kind of reboot itself and i know at the moment peter parker's not spider-man from what i've guessed but that will change and it always goes back to some amount of status quo yeah so you just that's the thing about comics if you've been in it for so long it, it always changes always reboots itself always relaunches itself we we get a back to basics approach at some point i did like nick spencer's run on it by the way mm. Yeah, there's been some good the... runs over the years. There's only yeah, barely the Dan Slott era that you... didn't gel with me. Uh, initially it did. When it first started, I, I liked it. And I quite liked the Superior Spider-Man run, which I know you weren't a fan of, but I, I did yeah. enjoy that. But, I, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? I, I love Straczynski's run. That was that was my current classic. I thought that was a fantastic run. Yeah, he wove a lot of um, lore and mythos into it with the whole spider totem aspect. Yeah. Uh, and you, know, you can ignore he was daring it. with a few like ideas. It. You can move on and ignore it. You don't like it. I'm enjoying the current run. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I thought that I wouldn't like the whole Peter Parker is now in a coma, and um, Ben Riley is the new suit Spider Man. But you know what? I'm quite liking it. Oh, good. Maybe I should give it a, give it a shot. I, I wasn't I wasn't intrigued by the concept, but uh, uh, maybe I should. I've been on a bit of a Jerry Anderson kick. I've uh, Jerry Anderson's son does a, a, a YouTube video cast about kind of the behind the scenes of of, of the jerry anderson story uh, and i found myself watching those over the last last week and that took me back i think it was it was seeing belfast because i i said to you that that was my generation that mm. brand is older than i am but i remember getting the thunderbird suit as a as a christmas present and all that sort of brought back that memory and uh, uh really reawakened my my love of, of all things Jerry Anderson, and that was my that was my introduction to genre, it really was. And so uh, I've got a soft spot for it. Clearly, it's, it's it's for kids, and it's the it's the perfect thing for kids. And I, I watched an episode of the CGI Captain Scarlet, which was also mm. very good. I've heard good things about the Thunderbirds one as well, but uh, yeah. I never got around to seeing it. So that's been my week. Yeah, these these fun things and fun diversions that we're having into like stuff that we've loved throughout the years. I think it's more important than ever at the moment because, let's be honest, the world events aren't very nice. Yeah, I was hoping we we're going to get through a show without mentioning it, but we can't. I, not I, mention I it. think that we can't. We we can't just skirt around and pretend that what's happening in Ukraine isn't happening in Ukraine. I know that we call, talk about film, but this is a huge world factor that is going to impact on everyone. Yeah, I agree. I. I've done a lot of research. I've done a lot of reading. And I think maybe you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I think you do have a tendency to go nostalgia when you are looking for the things that make you happy. Yeah. Uh, you're looking for the things that, that uh, take you away from that. I think it'll reflect in box offices. I think, well, people want escapism. We, we saw that with, um, with, with Spider-Man to a degree. Yeah. We want, we want that fantasy, I think. Hence why in, in a superhero world, there's always going to be heroes who'll save it. It's uh, it's a worrying time. I've uh, I've um, had some very I'm pleased to say intellectual discussions with learned people over the last week who've given me insight as opposed to sensationalism, gossip, uh, half doctored videos, uh, clips that came out in 2016 and not on are being used as sort of even propaganda for those in in favor of, of Ukraine. but i know to, to try and stick to the facts the facts that offer a little bit more optimism than the pessimism that we could uh, we could all be dwelling on 
uh, and that's kind of kept me going and that's that's by doing it by doing it properly and doing research and and yeah. looking at world events and how world events play out and uh, and you know by the grace of god that uh, and I'm not a religious man but you know that everything figures itself out i don't think it'll figure itself out soon this situation will have a legacy and will have an effect uh, for an awful long time and uh, yeah i think what brings down dictators ultimately and as a friend said to mine, you never get to see old dictators. You always get to see them. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, they, they do have a, a shelf life. And the one thing that brings them down always is hubris. So like, well, one thing that stood out for me is yeah, you look at like most wars that take place and the, the leaders of those countries and like the people in political powers don't get directly involved. They use everyone as pawns. Yeah. Unlike the Ukraine, where literally everyone steps up to the mark including uh, the, the mayor of Kiev, who uh, yeah. had actually left the country and then returned to the country to go and fight alongside his people because yeah. he genuinely cares for his country. I, it, it's a it's a horrible situation and my heart goes out to everyone embroiled in it. I'm pretty sure, I mean, people are blaming all the Russians for following the orders, but isn't that what an army's supposed to do? And yeah. there's, a, there's some Russian troops who've actually surrendered already because they don't agree with what they've been told to do. Well, they're fighting the brothers to a degree. I mean, they're all Slavics. I mean, it's yeah. important to note that if they get sent back to Russia, then they will be executed. Yeah. They know that they will get executed for turning against their country, but they feel that they can't go through with the actions that they've been told to do. It's it's tense situation in that part of the world. We've not had that kind of situation. I mean, we've had tension, but we've not actually had direct war on yeah. European soil since, well, Second World War. Yeah. I mean, I mean for those who are going, this is World War Three. I very much doubt it. Uh, and, and I and I mean that from from having, hopefully you know read read the right mm. literature and, and read a broad broad amount of literature rather than just hearsay, and uh, uh, I listened to a lot of uh, very knowing commentaries by people who do know the, the stuff as opposed to you know somebody on a on a soapbox. Uh, this isn't World War Three because it is one country yeah. basically, and um, Russia aren't as powerful as we like to think they are. They are even their military might is is somewhat antiquated we see the quality of things like their 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 their, their troopers and things like that which are which are phenomenal but they ultimately russia's not a very 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 wealthy country and that affects everything so when people say well, why we should be going up and fighting no we shouldn't sanctions are the other way forward because yeah that's how you cripple an economy now you cripple yeah. an economy and you bring it to its knees they can't afford the war machine yeah, it's costing you know an estimated billion dollars a day to 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 do this. You know, no one's thought of those those, those factors. And when you've got a, a populace who are predominantly poor, you know that will have somewhat of effect. And now they can't get the dollars out of the bank and all that sort of thing. Yes, it's easy to say send in troops, send in NATO, but it's you got to remember Ukraine's not a NATO country, yeah. uh, which has been part of uh, part of the discussions. But yeah, if you are are concerned then you have every right to be but read up read more about it don't just go to your um, go to your twitter feeds and and your facebook pages and read up what's on there because while there might be a nugget of truth push a little bit deeper it's, there's there's a lot of interesting facts out there which will hopefully put your minds at ease and and of, of possible ways that there is a way out of this yeah, don't be, don't be like that old couple from Hull who wanted a refund on their tickets to a comedy club in Blackpool this week because of the, the invasion of Ukraine. 
Oh, did you not see that one? No. Yeah, there's an elderly couple in Hull who kicked off at a comedy club in Blackpool because they had tickets for one of the um, events on the Saturday. And they didn't want to do it because of the situation in Ukraine is uh, going to restrict their travel from okay. Hull. <laughs> I think they um, misunderstood Ukraine as UK for some reason. And they seem <laughs> to think that the Russians were on our territory. It, it, okay. It's bewildering. They, they, they've kicked off and sent a huge letter, like, kicking off. And the comedy club just posted it online, just gone, really? We couldn't write this material ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, on that slightly joyous note, more uplifting than the, the present news, what do we got on this week's show? Well, on this week's episode of The Film File, we are going to be doing this week's deep dive into Tim Burton's 1989 Batman. Andy is going to be offering a plethora reviews which include studio 666 the duke kimmy and the desperate hour that's what happens when you've got a man with a lot of time on his hands this week <laughs> but before any of that here's this week's box office and the news so starting off with the box office where are we this week what are the big hitters because uh, as we know it's been a bit of a quiet week for new openings what are people paying their ticket prices on? Over in the US this weekend, Uncharted held the top spot after having a 47% drop-off on the previous weekend. It took in $23 million. This time next week, the Batman will have released, which means that Uncharted will definitely drop down at that point. To what position and to what takings, we don't know at this point in time. Dog took second place with $10.2 Spider-Man No Way Home still hanging in there with $5.8 in third place. Death on the Nile on $4.5 in fourth place. And Jackass Forever, those guys still hanging in and still causing trouble at $3.1 In the UK, Uncharted again held the top spot. It's on its third week. It took a £3.1 million. Sing 2 is still charming audiences with another £2.7 million at second place. The Duke is straight in at number three, taking just under a million. Death on the Nile holds on to fourth place and Dog held into fifth place. Uncharted so far has taken £226 million worldwide, which on a £120 million budget means that by the end of this week, it'll have broken into profit. Well, you know, there were those uh, naysayers who thought that Uncharted didn't have legs. And um, while we, we said it's not a great movie, you tell you what, they knew how to release it just at the right time when things were a little bit quiet. And as we know, it's uh, with all that's going on in the world, I think people just want a little bit of escapism. And I think that's going to reflect in the box office over the next few weeks. Yeah. So new stories. Let's kick off with... So there's only a week to go before the Batman comes out, and Matt Reeves has already revealed that there's discussions around a sequel that have begun. And this is separate to the talks of the HBO Max spin-offs such as Penguin or the Gordon one. And in Reeves' words, I really believe in what we've done, and I'd be excited to tell more stories. We're already telling other stories in the streaming space. We're doing stuff on HBO Max. We're doing a Penguin show, which is going to be super cool. And we're working on some other stuff too, but we've started talking about another movie. Oh, that's good. That's that's faith in a project. I've heard that the advanced word is pretty good on it. Yes, uh, the, the initial early buzz from the screenings that have been run so far have been very positive, and it, it's it's tracking for a decent opening, even though it's a three-hour film, which limits the amount of shows that you can have on. It's tracking for a decent opening. He's also confirmed that the film's going to be available as a standalone, i.e. if they never make a sequel, you won't feel that you've missed out. It's set 
as one story. Well, that's interesting. By the time this goes out, and by as we record this uh, a couple of days in advance, by the time you hear this show, the embargo will have lifted on the review, so you'll have a better idea uh, than us at this stage. But from what from what I hear from my inside sources, that it's it's looking good that the the studio have got faith in it. And uh, I watched I watched War for the Planet of the Apes last night uh, with the child, uh, who's who I've got him into this particular run of Planet of the Apes movies. That, We've talked about Planet of the Apes before, but this this run is so good. And Matt Reeves certainly knows how to frame a shot. He knows how to frame a shot. He knows how to layer a story as well. Yeah, That's the key thing. He's, he's, he adds a lot of depth to it. And, you know, he's gone for a sort of neo-noir, almost Seven-esque look from, from what we've got from the clips and the trailers. And, uh, yeah, I'm always excited for a Batman movie. All going well. We will have our thoughts on the Batman next week. We might have a lot of thoughts. We might only have minor thoughts, but we're going to have some thoughts. There'll definitely be thoughts. Uh, we spoke about the Doctor Strange trailer last week, and we yeah. spoke about the inclusion of Patrick Stewart's voice in the trailer, which started the buzz and started us speculating ourselves about Professor X, the mutants possibly entering MCU, the Illuminati. Have you seen Patrick Stewart's response? I did see that he'd give a perfectly Patrick Stewart response. Well, it's what I now call the Garfield defence <laughs> where okay. you blatantly deny everything. It's like, you know, people have been imitating my voice ever since I came onto the stage 60 years ago. So I can't be held responsible for that. Yeah, so you're now trying to tell us that that's not your voice in the trailer there, Patrick. Okay, the Garfield defense. I get that. <laughs> so coy. Because <laughs> we know how how much Andrew Garfield, every time that something was put, pointed out, it was like, we've got photos of you on set. It's like, that's not me. They just uh, put a different face on there. We've, we've got this like on-set report. No, no, no. I can't have been doing that. I was over here doing this. Everyone seems to be adopting that defence now. Just deny everything. <laughs> yeah, subterfuge. Best way forward. Also last week, we reported on the surprise news of the fourth Star Trek film in the J.J. Abrams series with the cast returning. We did. Well, it, it turns out it was such a huge surprise that even the cast didn't know about it. <laughs> okay, right. Should we be, should we be worried? Obviously, Paramount got excited during their investor presentation, and it was the high-profile presentation to investors to go, this is where we're going. And it was indicated that there'll be another one of the films with Abrams behind the scenes and all the cast members like Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto in discussions, aiming to kick off filming by the end of this year. But the Hollywood Reporter sources say that most, if not all, the reps for the franchise's key cast were not aware that an announcement was taking place for another film and much less that their clients would be touted as being in talks to be ready for the end of the year. Most recent sources say that Chris Pine, who plays Kirk, has entered early negotiations for the movie, which hopes to make a December the 22nd, 2023 release. In addition, the script is being worked on, but there's no green light or budget set in place. And in okay. fact, most of the trades now are implying that Paramount might have potentially messed up on the negotiating leverage by making this announcement before everything was ready. That's unusual for a studio to jump the gun in such a way, um, especially when when the necessity to to, to bring on a, um, a big cast, an ensemble cast. Mm. We don't know the inner workings of, of what's going on, so there, there might be more to this than initially reported. But, yeah, I, I, I had read something similar. So um, fingers crossed is the only thing we can say. And set phases to stun has been the second thing we can say. We made it clear last week that we're, we're quite excited to see what they can do if they can get that cast back together. 
whether we do. Another thing that we've spoken about how excited we are that it's getting a, a refreshed look is the Babylon 5 reboot. Yeah, where's that now? Uh, well, Jay Andrusinski has informed this week that it's still happening, but it's got, it's been pushed back a year. It's not going to be in this development season. The original series, for those who've never watched Babylon 5, and it's on IMDb TV for free, so just get it watched. Oh, you should, you should. Followed officers and key ambassadors on a space station in neutral space and had a five-season arc that brought in political machinations, spiritual prophecies, time travel, interstellar war, and battle against old gods. It was conceived as one full story before it even went to season one shooting, and it was a passion project for creator J.M. Straczynski. And now this new take that J.M. Straczynski is developing, I think has been delayed because he wants to map out where he wants all the seasons to go again before rushing into a first season. But the rumours say that it's going to follow John Sheridan from the start, the Air Force Earth Force officer with a mysterious background, played by Bruce Boxleitner in the original series, who's assigned to Babylon 5 whilst an Earth Explorer team accidentally trigger an interstellar war with an ancient civilization, drawing Babylon 5 station into the conflict. So it's it's got to follow the same base underlying themes, but no doubt he's going to touch on current world events because one great thing about my rewatch of Babylon 5 at the moment is seeing how much it tapped into actual events and you know how much it parallels what we've been through over the past 10 years in the world. So I'm I'm interested to see what Straczynski can bring to it. He's such a he's such a great storyteller, as he demonstrated with basically mapping out five seasons of a show himself. Yeah, I mean he did he did write almost every episode. Neil Gaiman dropped in and wrote famously was his first TV yeah. script. The, the thing about Babylon 5 is we without that, we wouldn't have had shows like The Expanse because it really laid the groundwork for uh, for, for the bigger stories, the bigger arcs that, that hadn't been done, especially on sci-fi TV. Everything was a self-contained episode. You know, yeah. you think about Star Trek, for instance, Space 1999, all those shows were, were just self-contained and it did something different and that had a huge influence on, on sort of the Star Trek universe ultimately as well. Yeah, there was a whole um, coincidence that Straczynski pitched an idea for a space station-based Star Trek series before he developed Babylon 5. He was turned down by the the studio, went off to develop Babylon 5, and then in the meantime, Paramount, funnily enough, came up with an idea for Deep Space Nine, which was a Star Trek-based space station series. and they launched pretty much around the same time. Ongoing storyline, which mapped over multiple seasons. Mm, Huge coincidences there. I don't think Straczynski was uh, was uh, messed about, uh, messed around by Paramount at all. Honest. <laughs> well, I've got some good news because uh, if if you're not a fan of Shane Black, get out of here. Okay, I'll give you the Predators, which I finally caught up with the other week. Oh, oh boy, enough said. But yeah. our love for Lethal Weapon, The Last Boy Scout, and in particular, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, because without <laughs> Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, we wouldn't have had Robert Downey Jr back in the star mantle which led to iron man and subsequently it strangely led to iron man 3 but the two of them are reuniting for a new film and it's good to see them both together i'm a huge shane black fan a big influence on on my writing and uh we all who who doesn't love robert downey jr even before we knew who robert downey jr was was a big star we loved him and everything he did anyway they plan reportedly, of tackling a character who's been brought to the screen many, many times, including recently, and that's Donald Westlake's Parker character. Yes, uh, the character's been in uh, 24 novels, I believe. 
Yeah. And uh, you say that he's been on screen before. I mean, Borman's Point Blank with Lee Marvin. That's right. Uh, payback with Mel Gibson and Statham's Parker being the most memorable times. Yeah, there's even there was even a couple more. Okay, there was uh, Jim Brown in 1968's The Split, which I knew nothing of. I yep. do know Robert Duvall in a great movie, which is hugely underseen, 1973's The Outfit. And I didn't know that Peter Coyote uh, was in 1983's uh, Slate Ground playing Parker. So it's it's a character that we're familiar with, but it's one that you can do so much with as well. And I think Robert Downey Jr. is a great, I mean, when he works with Black anyway, he's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited for this. We know we know what Shane Black could do with like a detective yarn. We've seen him dabble in that kind of arena before. And there's a lot, I mean, like I say, there's 24 novels. So there's a lot of material that you could actually, if it's successful, continue with more. Yeah. Excited for this one. Well, yeah, there much. again, it's, it's got Shane Black's name on it. So of course I'm excited, despite the Predator. Oscars update. And as the event gets closer... The Academy has revealed that eight of the awards will not be presented live on air this year. The three short film categories, documentary, animated and live action, sound, makeup and hairstyling, production design and score and editing. Now, this isn't the first time that they suggested dropping these from the show. A few years ago, they were going to do the same, but Backlash changed their mind. Clearly, these categories aren't as important an award as the other ones because, you know, who needs well-mixed sound in a film? Just give us the raw sound so voices will be lost <laughs> against background noise. Everything feels flat. What won't hurt the film? Makeup and costumes aren't important. The cast can just turn up in jeans and T-shirt, can't they? Who needs editing? Just release the full 50 hours of film footage, multiple takes, reshoots, and let oh, the audience uh, make I, I know a certain cult which would love that. <laughs> <laughs> and as for short movies, why should we care about honouring the up-and-coming big names of the industry? So, yeah, as you can guess, I'm not impressed with this decision. <laughs> but apparently some of the Academy leadership agree entirely that it shouldn't be, they shouldn't be taken out. But the aim is to, the aim, as we said before, is to make this year's actual show a snappier awards for the general public. Those who don't know the people behind the camera and focus just on the big name stars, the actors and directors that they are aware of. They're trying to entice viewership back to the actual stream show. Uh, but now as a half measure, those awards will be handed out in a separate event in the Dolby Theatre an hour before the main show and then swiftly edited for inclusion into the main show with the aim to make it feel like part of the flow. What's the point then? Why not just have them handed out there and then? It makes no sense. We also mentioned last week about the um, hashtag Oscar fan favourite for oh, yeah. voting for the Oscar fan favourite. And we suspected that a certain fan base who like hashtags would uh, decide <laughs> to flood this one. To make Can their I ask, fandom look before bigger. Before you move on, did we get any feedback from that last week? Any death? <laughs> we got threats? no backlash. No, oh, no. Okay. I don't. I think. I think we've already put that audience off in the past when we've okay. uh, criticised stuff. I think they've realised that we're not going to pay attention to them. Uh, but yes, the Snyder fans did indeed start pushing for Army of the Dead as the fan favourite award. Oh, really? Zack Snyder's Justice League isn't allowed because it's a re-edit of a past film. Yes, it's a re-edit of a previously released film. It is not a film in and of itself. Ha ha, take that Snyder fanboy. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, whilst that was doing absolutely brilliantly and looked like Army of the Dead would be the fan favourite, there's another rather unlikely one that's taken the lead. And this has got to have been a backlash purely to prove to the Snyder fanboys that hashtags don't mean popularity. Can I guess before you do it? Is it Dora the Explorer? No. Oh, it's yeah. even worse that even, well, I, I enjoy Dora the Explorer. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 um, it's a good kids film. 
But it's even more bizarre a choice. It's Amazon's Cinderella movie. <laughs> really? That that musical that was derided, hated, and hardly watched. And there's a campaign <laughs> to get that being the Oscar fan favorite to A, make sure that Zack Snyder doesn't get it. And B, point out to the Oscars that doing such stupid stunts doesn't work. I think that's a great campaign, and I'm well behind it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I've got some news. You were talking about how important sound is in the Oscars. Well, interestingly enough, and coincidentally enough, I've been teaching about this particular certain Hollywood talent, and that is Buster Keaton, of course, made his huge impact in silent film. It's reported that James Mangold and... 20th Century Studios are currently developing a film based around the life of the filmmaker and the comedian. Uh, Based on Marion Mead's book, Buster Keaton's Cut to the Chase, Mangold is set to both direct and produce, and the studio are currently in search of a writer to adapt Keaton's story for the big screen. Mangold's an interesting director, before going on about about the strength of Buster Keaton, um, because he makes some very interesting choices of movies. I mean, Copland was a fantastic debut. Yeah. And he's done comic books with, with the Wolverine and Logan. Uh, he's now currently, as we know, doing adventure movies with uh, Indiana Jones 5. He's he's done True Life Adventure with Le Mans 66. He's also done biopics before with his Johnny Cash movie. So interesting director that, that has some interesting choices in his in his catalogue. And Keaton, as we know, was a pioneer of the physical comedy um, in yeah. silent movies. And to some extent, I think that's why his work holds up so well, because you see echoes of Keaton's work in people like Jackie Chan. Yeah. He was an amazing screen talent and performer and produced and directed his own work in in a way that revolutionized cinema. And if you if you're not drawn to silent film and you feel that you've got to watch something, try Keaton because it holds up remarkably well. Yes, it's it's black and white and it's dated and it's silent. But but the man's abilities on screen are just amazing. Yeah, uh, Keaton's Keaton's comedies are fantastic to watch, and you cannot help but still be impressed by the stunt work and choreography that he put into everything. Yeah, catch the marvelous general, stuff if you, if you want to see definitely something. the general is. I think I think it's on Amazon at the moment. It should be catch it's, the general on Amazon. Netflix have nabbed the rights to Mark Alden's Black Samurai novels, hoping to launch okay. an action franchise from the tales. Uh, the books focus on Robert Sand, a US soldier in Japan who learns the most powerful martial arts techniques and becomes Black Samurai. Globe trotting <laughs> thrillers that tackled black market warheads, voodoo priests, and golden katanas. It sounds like a day previously... in the life for me. <laughs> day in the life, well, I tell you. And, and this taps into our love of martial arts films that we spoke about a good yeah. few episodes ago because the character was previously seen on screen in the 1977 film with Jim Kelly. Oh, really? I didn't know he'd be actually been on the screen before. Yep, in a, a Black Samurai, 1977. So hopefully it will retain some of that old school martial arts feel <laughs> that the pulpy stories tell. Oh, let's hope I'm, so. I'm quite looking forward to it. What I'm not quite looking forward to is um, Halloween ends because I've been so put off by this wave of the recent Halloween reboot. It started off okay. And then we had a film that was absolutely unnecessary. And now yes. we're going to uh, apparently end the Halloween uh, franchise, apparently. From what David Gordon Green's been saying, this is going to be a definitive end for the John Carpenter originated franchise. Or will it? Carpenter, who also composes the scores for the new trilogy, wonders himself whether it's really end. In his words, 
Let me explain the movie business to you. If you take a dollar sign and attach it to anything, there'll be somebody who wants to do a sequel. It will live. If the dollar sign is not big enough, no matter what, it will not live. I don't know, man. I don't know. This time, I don't know. They really want it to end. They're going to shut it off, end it. It's what David has in mind. That's fine. Uh, Jason Blum has stated that there's no plans for further films in the series or reboots. I'm still not convinced. Uh, but Carpenter did at the same time speak about another of his films that he'd like to revisit with a legacy sequel. And of course, okay. it's a fan favourite. I'd like to do a sequel to The Thing or a continuation, something like that. But I don't know. See, there are a lot of things in this world I don't know. <laughs> he doesn't know anything anymore, does he? <laughs> well, what we do know about uh, John Carpenter is that in a special throwback, thanks to Bloomhouse, he is scoring the latest adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter. Now, yep. interestingly enough, at one point, John Carpenter was to direct Firestarter with a script by The Thing's Bill Lancaster. Everything went wrong due to uh, the apparent critical mauling that The Thing got. And uh, um, John Carpenter, his vision for Firestarter didn't happen. So they brought him back as a kind of a, a kind of a tribute, really, by allowing him to do the soundtrack to the upcoming version of Firestarter. With regards to The Thing, uh, back in 2020, there was talks on a reboot of The Thing from Blumhouse, but that went very quiet, very quickly. Pandemic hit, a lot of things were put on hold. Maybe once Halloween's out the way, the reason why Blum says that's done is he wants to then retarget and refocus and do some Thing films, and that's when we'll hear the news. But we'll find that out later this year, as soon as Halloween ends. Ends the franchise. Oh, the end of the end. There was a there was a great script for a TV miniseries. I think it was Ronald D. Moore was going mm. to do on the thing, which was a which a really really clever take on it. I doubt we'll get ever get to see that version, but let's be known that there were some good ideas for a, a thing sequel. The best thing sequel there's ever been was a comic book series from Dark Horse which picked up after the movie which was stunning uh, the artwork in that as well was fantastic yeah, yeah very visceral Spielberg who's no stranger to tapping into old properties as demonstrated recently with the magnificent West Side yeah, Story yeah I saw this story is going to tap into the character of Steve McQueen's bullet for Warner Brothers and no it's not a remake it's going yeah. to be an original story about the character of the San Francisco police detective Lieutenant Frank Bullet. I was knocked out by this story I kind of came out of nowhere, especially with uh, Spielberg being connected to it. But yep. yeah, bring it on. It'd be interesting to see where they go with it and, and the fact that they're not remaking Bullet and doing something new. I don't know if the Bullet character came from a, a, another source. Was he from a series it of books? Was, I think he was. The original film was based on the book Mute Witness by That's Robert right. L. Fish. That's right. And yeah, the original film has that iconic car chase through the streets of San Francisco. One of yeah, the most the iconic chases in cinema history, with McQueen doing all the driving himself for the scene to make it authentic. Whether Spielberg can tap into that kind of magic and bring it for a new audience? Oh, come on, it's Spielberg, of course he can. Why am I even speculating? If anybody can. He can, can. We've been talking about the casting for Oppenheimer for, well, since the <laughs> casting for Oppenheimer started. Uh, every week adds a new member to the cast, but Kenneth Branagh has now joined the cast, as well as the first look of Killian Murphy in the title role was revealed this week. Don't get too excited. It's basically Killian Murphy with a cigarette in his mouth and a wide brim <laughs> hat. So uh, other than that, it's not like doing the first reveal for Moon Knight. And speaking of Kenneth Branagh, um, as part of the promotional tour for Death on the Nile, he's spoken about how he'd love to explore more of the Christie-verse 
specifically Miss Marple stories, which he'd love to have a film where she gets to meet Poirot on screen. <laughs> it's the different approach that Marple has, which intrigues him. In his words, I'd love to see Marple in a movie universe. I really would. She's a brilliant, brilliant detective. I mean, not officially a detective. She's a brilliant sleuth. And as I've been researching Poirot, I've read many, many, many Marples. And it's this other quality of being able, because of what people think they know about her, to be a detective, therefore, who can disappear, who can be invisible. Which, yeah, I mean, I've, ne- I've never really considered that. I've always thought that maybe Agatha Christie was a one-trick pony you could only do like detective novels. But when you think of the different personalities, Poirot is an established detective, and yeah. everyone knows he's a detective, so everyone's on the guard around him. Miss Marple is just coincidentally there every time people die. And manages to piece she's she puts things together without seeming like she's trying to solve the mysteries yeah it'd be interesting i mean because they've never met in any film adaptation i think they have on one of the tv specials i don't know about that they they met on a a spoof movie i think it was i can't remember what it was called it'll come back to me but But, um it'd be interesting to you know establish some miss marple movies and have the two characters working together on a case or interlinking across two cases who knows it's a it's a wish project of Branner. if he can get enough um traction on the rest of the box office for death on the nile we might see it to come to fruition here's a couple of quick ones to throw at you david desmalchian and marion island join rob savage who brought us the host uh new horror film the bogeyman and bill murray is to star in aziz anzari's directorial debut interesting side note on David Dasmalchian when I do the monthly quiz at the cinema there's one of the questions that every month the answer is David Dasmalchian oh right (laughs) we do a Billy Connolly one in in our our quiz the regular teams have started to work out that question nine is always David (laughs) Dasmalchian is there enough to keep you going oh I've got I've still got a few more but I'm tempted to suddenly switch it out one month and catch them all off guard (laughs) yeah don't get easy on them a bit of Marvel news Marvel's Blade has added Aaron Pierre to the cast. Everything we know about this film is currently shrouded in the darkest cloak of secrecy that one can buy. But you remember Aaron Pierre was in M. Night Shyamalan's Old. Yep. Um, casting on The Meg 2 has seen some shuffles. Wu Jing, the highest grossing male actor of China of all time, has joined the trench for Warner Brothers. The actor who penned and directed the Wolf Warrior series starred in Chinese smashes such as Battle at Lake Shangjin, as well as Western-made films like The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, joins the Meg sequel as the original leading actress, Li Bingbing, has exited. Um, The film also stars, obviously, The Stathe, Cliff Curtis and Paige Kennedy, and is currently shooting in the Leavesden Studios in the UK up until May. And then it will switch to some outdoor locations because... Let's be honest, there's not a lot of water in Leavesden Studios. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ben Wheatley is directing, which is still, still interesting to me. Still crazy, I, I, crazy directing choice. It's either an absolute genius idea or, wow, this is going to go terribly wrong. I haven't decided <laughs> yet, but um, I'm, I'm curious enough to keep my eye out on this. And there's, there's been release date shuffles. Oh, I thought that was a thing of the past. No, they're still juggled, but I don't think any of these are due to any ongoing health situations now. I think it's just jostling for positions. Uh, Tom Hanks's A Man Called Otto is now set for December 25th this year. The Whitney Houston biopic I Want to Dance with Somebody has therefore moved away from December the 25th and comes out just before Christmas on December the 21st. The Sandra O'Hara Ummer lands this March on March the 18th. Jack Black comedy Oh Hell No has vanished completely. 
Maybe that's a good thing. Okay. The Adam the Adam Driver led Sci Fi sixty five has shifted a full year from April the 29th, 2022 to 2023. A fourth Despicable Me movie has been given July the 3rd, 2024 release date. Given that Minions Rise of Gru has had so many delays and still isn't here yet, I think they're being a bit too optimistic there. Haunted Mansion is March the 10th, 2023, which puts it up against Dungeons and Dragons. I know where my money's going. <laughs> uh, the Banshees of Inner Sheeran from Martin McDonough has grabbed the October the 21st spot this year. And Renfield, the Nick Cage starring Dracula comedy, has April the 14th, 2023. And that, Andy, unless there's anything else, is that the news? Well, sadly, we have to round off the news today with another loss of someone who was significant, significant for mainly one role in a film that we've spoken about previously on the show, but also known for various TV roles and minor small roles in a lot of films over the years. Um, MASH actress Sally Kellerman, has died aged 84. Really? I wasn't aware of this story. When when did this land? This landed only two days ago. Oh, my goodness. She, she was famous and Oscar-nominated for her part as Hot Lips Houlihan in the MASH feature. That's right. The great Robert Altman MASH feature that I can just re-watch constantly. Yes. And she also had memorable roles in the 60s in shows such as Star Trek. She was yeah. in the second pilot where no man has gone before. She was in Rodney, Rodney Dangerfield's comedy Back to School. Altman's Brewster McLeod, The Player, and Ready to Wear. A wealth of parts in TV and movies over the decades, with roles in Slither, Lost Horizon, the disaster spoof, The Big Bus, and I think we need to talk about The Big Bus as a deep dive <laughs> a, at one it's point. It's a bit like your book, Rubanzai, that, isn't it? The Big Bus. Because everyone remembers Airplane, but no one remembers The Big Bus, which was doing the uh, same kind of disaster movie bus. parody. So we're, we're going to talk, talk, talk about that at one point. Uh, she was in Meatballs 3. She was in the miniseries Centennial and much, much more. Uh, yeah. She spent the last five years of her life battling dementia but, and sadly passed away uh, this past week. Oh, that is that is really sad news. Uh, Sally Kellerman was one of those uh, actresses that, that I grew up with, uh, mainly first remembering her for Star Trek. She, as you say, she was in uh, The Wendell Man Has Gone Before, uh, second Star Trek pilot, which I always think should be remade as one of the movies. I think it's a, fa- be a fantastic yeah. way to do it. And um, interestingly, she was in, it's, it's, you know, everyone's got a list of all-time terrible movies. <laughs> and this is an all-time terrible movie. But Lost Horizons, the, the musical version, she was in that. And uh, I have a soft spot, a real soft spot for the soundtrack to that album. And, uh, and, and she did her own, one of the only cast members to do her own, uh, her own singing parts on it. So, so sadly missed, sadly missed. And that is this week's The News. You're listening to your favourite film podcast, The Film File, with us, Lee and Andy, the film geeks, who do this weekly for your pleasure. Because we care so much about you, we are offering you the opportunity to, yes, become part of the Film File family. Firstly, what we'd like you to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform and hit the subscribe button and please leave a review and a like, because, hey, we're living in those modern times where reviews and likes are oh so important. But come and join us in other ways as you can get in touch with us via these exciting social media platforms. You can catch us on Twitter at FilmFileUK. You can catch us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, which I need to get back to doing some things on. Uh, just look for FilmFileUK. There we are. You can even email us. Yes, you can send us full, long-winded messages. Anything that you want to email us about. Film, preferably film related, but I'm, I'm happy for anything. Uh, <laughs> med, medical conditions, uh, what 
what what your dog's stool is looking like these days. I don't <laughs> care. Just send me a message. <laughs> No, 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 madam, no. <laughs> well, you can email us with thoughts, suggestions, favourite films, uh, any films that you're trying to track down that you want us to help you with. Just fire us a message. It's as simple as that. Podcast at filmfile.uk. As ever, every week, uh, we do a deep dive into a film, whether it be classic, whether it's something we want to explore deeper, whether it's something that uh, we didn't like but needs further investigation. When this came out, Everybody was there for it. Picture yourself back in the year 1989. Picture yourself as being one of the, well, most in-your-face advertising campaigns probably ever for a movie because that was the year of the bat symbol and Tim Burton's Batman. My life is really complex. I have given a name to my pain. I'm Batman. Yeah, the year was 1989 and everybody went back crazy as the new Warner Brothers movie was about to be released. I mean, if you weren't there at the time, trust me, you just couldn't escape as the bat symbol became a piece of that year's iconography. It was everywhere. How to sell a movie on just a logo. And trust me, Warners did. It is, and probably always will be, one of the most famous advertising campaigns ever for a film. And it stoked the fire. Of course, this was the big screen return of Batman and everybody was talking about it. Produced by John Peters and Peter Gruber, directed by the odd choice at the time of Tim Burton, starring Jack Nicholson as the Joker, Michael Keaton as Batman Bruce Wayne, Kim Basinger, Robert Wall, Pat Hingle, very briefly Billy D. Williams and Michael Goff alongside Jack Palance. The film takes place early in the character's war on crime and depicts his conflict with the Joker. It had taken many years to get Batman to the big screen. At one point, everybody was connected with doing this. Ivan Reitman, as we talked about last week, was at one point down to direct Batman. Who was going to play the Cape Crusader? What were they going to do with it? Were they going to go the campy route that we'd left off from Adam West? We're going to go a different tone, uh, thematically looking at Frank Miller's Dark Knight Return or Alan Moore and Brian Boland's The Killing Joke. Where were we going to go and who was going to be the Batman? Many names were mentioned. Believe it or not, at one point, Bill Murray was in the running to be Batman. And we talk about how fans react now over social media. Can you imagine that one happening? When the announcement came out of Michael Keaton, it's a good job Twitter didn't exist. Otherwise, oh, yeah. there would have been hashtag shutters, restore the Westverse uh, would have been getting thrown around left, right and centre. Because in the limited public feedback that you could get via press and magazines, had it that this film was going to be a disaster. Uh, there were so many negative reports early in the production that they fa didn't they fast-track a trailer to get out very, very early just to bring people back on board and go, this is what we're going for? Yeah, I mean, the public expectation of who was going to play Batman was, was huge. Well, fans' expectation, because to, in the eyes of the public, we'd only had really one massive superhero movie, and that was uh, Warner Brothers' Superman the movie. So the idea was it was going to be 
someone like a, a Mel Gibson or a Tom Selleck or a Dennis Quaid. And at one point, apparently, Pierce Brosnan had been approached to, to play the comic book character. And, and back in those days, you know what? People didn't want to play comic book characters. Putting on a pair of tights and a cape wasn't considered, as it is now, to be the start of your career and more like a career ender. But when Tim Burton had signed on, he suggested Michael Keaton, arguing that he had the right amount of edgy, tormented quality, having worked with him in Beetlejuice and seen his crazy side and having seen his dramatic performance in the film Clean and Sober. But as Andy said, it was met with a lot of fan distaste. Letters were written to Warner Brothers. And until we started to see how Keaton delivered iconically the role of Batman, and to some extent, probably still the best interpretation, in my opinion, of The Dark Knight, then we were looked as though we were going to be on edgy ground. Tim Burton was an odd choice to direct. Mm. He'd come off Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He'd come off uh, Beetlejuice. But he brought a kind of stylized craziness, very much comic book quality, gothic quality to this particular movie. And interestingly enough, so some of the other choices I said were Ivan Reitman, people like Joe Dante. But Tim Burton won the role and made the Batman really his, his, his own. It wasn't just Batman, it was Tim Burton's Batman. What do you think, Andy? I mean, 30 odd years later, Andy, does it still have the same impact? Um, is it still... Is it still a classic? Or have we moved on from it? Uh, it? It holds up really well, and it can still grab new audiences, as demonstrated by the fact that my kids have watched them and enjoyed them. I'm say them because I'm also talking about the sequel uh, that followed Batman Returns. But Keaton, when he was a uh, cast, what inspired casting? It's one of them that it's not what the fans would have gone for, but it's what the fans really needed. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds like a very Batmanish quote. He's not, the... <laughs> <laughs> but. Keaton's involvement as well also was the reason why every interpretation of Batman since does a different voice for the Batman. And that's because Keaton, it calls himself a logic freak and was concerned that surely it's going to be easy to work out who the secret identity is because he sounds, looks and acts the same way as uh, Bruce Wayne. And he's never in the same room as him. And he, it was Keaton who came up with the idea to speak as Batman in a lower register than when he's portraying Bruce Wayne. It's become the staple. Yeah. It's become, now, that's how Batman is. Quite glad that he didn't decide to go for a higher octave, because that would have been a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your worst nightmare. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson as the Batman. Thank you very much. Uh, but there's, I mean, re-watching this, it's such a joy to re-watch. And it's because of the design. It's because of the Tim Burton aesthetics that, you know, there's a lot of criticism levied at Tim Burton in recent years about how all his films look the same. But it's important to note that early on in his career, this kind of look was fresh. His gothic designs fit Gotham perfectly. Everything seems to be dark and dingy and black. The costume itself, which again, there was letter writing campaigns that they're making the costume all black with just a yellow symbol. What happened to the blue and blue and greys? And now every Batman costume yeah. goes the black approach. And goes with the body armour roots, and which yeah. absolutely makes perfect sense. Why is the symbol bright yellow on the chest? Because uh, it draws people's fire, and that's where the heavy armour is. Yeah, it, it really did. It really defined how superhero costumes are. I remember I was so excited for this. As I'd been excited for Superman, I was so excited for this. Probably at the time more so than, than even Superman, because Batman was, was always my character. And I was working in a, 
uh, a comic book store at the time and anything that would land we would we would go crazy over it so there was a paparazzi shot of of the batman and we got to see the sort of look you know the elongated ears which were very neil adams and the idea of the, the bat suit being armor and then it appeared the first shot and i can still remember it i was in forbidden planet and i saw the first shot on a, a magazine called starlog there was michael keaton as the batman stood beside the the oh so impressive batmobile and my goodness for these young eyes was was that a sight to behold the design of gotham city which i think every subsequent batman has has got wrong but the design of it being this sort of almost retro futuristic 30s is in present day um was the way to go as anton first who was the production designer said gotham should be hell breaking out of the out of the pavement it, it just hit, hit the right tone danny elfman's score it's still the batman score for me and the fact that it appeared in joss whedon's justice league certainly gave me a thumbs up it was it was uh, an impressive way to go and we'd spent so long waiting for batman to get onto the big screen and you can't talk about batman without talking about jack nicholson's casting of the joker who often overshadows the title character because you've employed Jack Nicholson. So that was always going to happen. But a lot of casting choices for that. Uh, Ray Liotta was at one point mentioned after he'd come off uh, one of his first films. Tim Curry was high on the list. Interestingly, almost voiced uh, the Joker in the animated series. Willem Dafoe looked at one point to walk away with the role. But of course, being the producers, uh, who they were, they wanted a big name and they hired Jack Nicholson. It was interesting because uh, Nicholson turned it down initially, and so they offered it to Robin Williams. That's right, yeah. Which Robin Williams signed up, he accepted the role, but then the producers decided to approach Nicholson again and told him Williams would take part if he did not. So Nicholson then felt, well, I'm not having someone else steal my thunder, took the role. It then became, you got interviews with Nicholson talking about like his career, and he would always say that the Joker was one of his favourite roles that he ever played. He had so much fun in it. He delivered so much. I mean, he made 60 million making it because he took a percentage share. So (laughs) kudos to him. As a result of this, when Williams was asked if he wanted to play the Riddler in Batman Forever, he refused because he'd been messed around early on in the Batman production. Right. That he didn't want to work for Warner Brothers Productions until the studio directly apologised to him. Would Williams have been a great Joker? No, I think he would have been a great Riddler. I think Jack Nicholson was a perfect Joker because he's always got that little edge. He's always got that menace. And the thing about Batman is as interesting as Batman is as a character, his villains are even more interesting and they need to be represented well. Nicholson was a perfect piece of casting. Yeah, absolutely. He was he was a popular choice at the time. And he had a tendency to play as Jack Nicholson, let's be honest. Uh, and every time he's on screen, he's... Uh, He's amazingly, he's so over the top that he's back again. But, you know, as you, as you said, he, he, he captured the insane quality that you want from the Joker. Uh, and the, the whole film had this sort of, adhered to, to the comic book. It had bright colours. It was, it was fanciful in its, uh, in its imagery. It is the most Bar Cesar Romero screen accurate take on the Joker. It, it was the first time that we saw an origin story of the Joker depicted on screen. Yeah. We've said like the aesthetics all look great. You quickly mentioned the Batmobile. I want to delve a bit further into the Batmobile because okay. man, that was the most demanded and collectible vehicle toy 
of all time. I still want a model of the Batmobile. I've got toy cars of it. I've got small models, but I want a huge model of the Batmobile because isn't that just a great design? I, I put it down as the definitive Batmobile. I love the Adam West era Batmobile, but the the one from the Tim Burton's movies, that for me is the Batmobile. Absolutely, totally agree. I mean, I I love the Adam West version, but and, and subsequently other Batmobiles outside of the Tim Burton one were always a little bit weak, but this was impressive. This was the Batmobile. Um, I've got a lot of love for it. There are a lot of faults with Batman as a movie. There's, the story is very slight. It's highly influenced by Steve Englehart's run on, on Batman, which is a, as a classic run. It makes a few changes to the Batman mythos, which even writers Sam Hamm, such as Vicky Vale being let into the Batcave by Alfred, by the Joker killing Batman's parents, as opposed to Joe Chill were somewhat problematic, but I, I kind of let it go. Mm. It it really, really redefined Batman, both in the books and, and for the rest of the films. There was no way that you could go back and, and do a different take on Batman without Tim Burton's uh, initial approach. I mean, the great thing about Batman is that it led into Batman Returns. Yes, Batman Returns. I remember when Batman Returns came out, uh, me and my friends went to see it on opening day, and I, I was underwhelmed by it on that first viewing. Really? I don't know what I was expecting. I think because I, you know, the first film hit with such an impact and all the hype around the sequel, you know, the bat, the cat, and the penguin, and it just felt, I don't know, something didn't quite gel. But it's one of those films that when I when it came out on home release and I rented it out, I fell in love with it again. And it's now I now prefer Batman Returns to Batman. Yeah, me too. Because I think that the story's stronger. There's a lot more going on. I think DeVito is magnificent as the Penguin. Again, the villains are more interesting than the Batman. And as for Catwoman, wow. Yeah, what Pfeiffer was she played again the same way that Michael Keaton played two personalities. He played Bruce Wayne, he played Batman. She plays Selena Kyle and Catwoman. And the two different aspects of personality and we've not mentioned the music score all that much yet you know that that iconic theme from batman it's possibly danny elfman's finest score but in bat batman returns he even surpasses that with the themes around catwoman yeah all of her theme that the transformation of selena kyle is majestic with that whole orchestral score as like she's smashing an apartment over dun 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 Absolutely brilliant scoring and shows how important music is for conveying emotions in a scene because you feel her trauma, you feel her her rebirth through that score. Every time I listen to that soundtrack, and this is a soundtrack that I bought when it first came out and I listen to still, even today, quite frequently. And every time it gets to that, I'm just swept up in the emotion of it. That's a good score. But everything on Batman Returns was right. The gadgets moved ahead a bit further. You know, it's, yeah. the Batmobile had another little transformation where it turns into the, the, the bullet car. Yeah. Um, you've got great performances from everyone involved and it, it's more comfortable. It's laid the foundation with the first film. It's more comfortable to just jump straight in. It's dark, it's witty, it's Tim Burton through and through. And it's such a shame that after that one, you know, they couldn't come to an agreement for him to do the third film. Yeah, because of that, we lost uh, Keaton as Batman, who was up initially for, for doing a Batman 3. As history will tell us, it went to Joel Schumacher, who initially cast Val Kilmer as Batman, who wasn't bad 
and then cast yeah. George Clooney, who, who was pretty, pretty terrible. I don't think he was, I mean, re-watching Batman and Robin, I don't think Clooney very was... very brave of you. <laughs> You're doing the Lord's work there, <laughs> I don't think he was particularly bad. I just think he was hindered by a bad film. I think he could have been a great Batman, but he just wasn't given the material to yeah, work with. Yeah, I agree. With. Yeah, I'm, I'm being, I'm being a little bit, uh, a little bit disingenuous. It wasn't, it wasn't Clooney's fault. It was, it was clearly Schumacher's decision to take it back down to campy. I've got very little love for Batman and Robin. A little, slight little bit more for for Batman Forever. There were some good ideas, and if that had been done by Burton and they'd not cast Jim Carrey in it. It could have been a, a great yeah. film. It was an interesting take of where they wanted to go with Explore the Origin of, of the Bat uh, emblem itself. But um, ultimately, what we were left without the legacy were the two Tim Burton movies. Now, we've moved on tremendously, but we couldn't have had Batman today, opening this week, without having to look back over Burton's take on it. And yeah. this was at a time when superhero movies were weren't a sure thing. Yeah. Superman and Superman 2 had done very well, but the subsequent sequels had failed miserably. But when this came out in June 1989, it scored and grossed 40 to 49 million during its opening weekend. It's those kind of figures that make the film an absolute uh, a classic of its time that proved that audiences wanted to see superheroes on the big screen. And taken seriously. I mean, yes, there's a, a lot of fun to be had. There's some silliness in there, but it's dark and brooding and it's it's character drama rather than just, well, as much as I love the Adam West era and I do love the Adam West era. Oh, yeah, it was, it was our introduction to the character. They were just crazy farce more than anything else. And I love them for being that. But Tim Burton's Batman showed us that you can take comic book movies seriously and was daring enough to kill off the villain in the very last shot. Yeah, which many saw as a mistake, but yep. uh, it also, again, set a trend. This was an amazing time. We saw a Batman that was eerie and weird and, and, and spectacular and dark and entertaining. And, and even though Jack Nicholson's Joker overshadowed the title character, we got a great Batman in Michael Keaton, yeah. and so much so that Keaton's come back to play the part again in the uh, Batgirl movie and um, hopefully the Flash movie as well. So that's the amount of an impression that Keaton gave and still is, despite all the other takes. I loved Affleck's take on it. Uh, Christian Bale, pretty good, but it is for me always going to be Michael Keaton's portrayal of Batman that is my Batman. One final side note about the legacy that Tim Burton's Batman gave. If it hadn't been for Tim Burton's Batman, we wouldn't have got that animated series. Yeah, well worth bringing and talking about, Andy, because it still is, the de which is, I've got to be perfectly honest, the definitive take on Batman for me. Yeah, it, it was influenced by the, the style and the tone of the Batman. Use the soundtrack. Uh, Tim Burton's Batman. The soundtrack was retained in there. The Batmobile had been slightly redesigned, but it still had that kind of bullet-like look and yeah. did the power shielding. It was very much a product that came from the hype around Tim Burton's Batman. And I'm so glad it did because it is the best Batman animated series ever. And all the Batman movies that we get now are inspired and drawn from that interpretation of Batman. If we want to watch Batman in prelude to watching the Batman, where can we find it? Uh, you can catch the Batman movies currently on Sky Cinema or now TV Cinema, or you'll have to rent them. Or just treat yourself. The, the box set Blu-ray is quite cheap to pick up. 
well worth picking up. You get all four of those era of films for good or for bad, uh, but with extras and commentaries. So there's a lot to enjoy and explore as a fan of it. And in light of that, we will be reviewing the Batman on next week's show. So Andy's been doing the Lord's work again and, and taking that bullet for some of the best and the bad films that he's going to be reviewing this week. He's uh, he's ahead of me. Down to personal reasons, couldn't make one of the movies, but I am so annoyed that I didn't get to see it. But that's <laughs> another story for another time. Andy, what have you been to see? We're going to start with the one that you're so annoyed that you didn't get a chance to see it, and that's Studio 666. Foo Fighters! you got to get me a record. It's our 10th album. Let's go somewhere we've never been. Whoa. This house allows spiritual entities to cross into our world. Oh my God! Dude has got one flew over the cuckoo's nest crazy. <laughs> You're welcome, music. Studio 666. So the Foo Fighters are struggling to come up with material for their 10th album. And they are given an ultimatum by their label boss, played marvelously by Jeff Garland. Wanting a different sound, the band has shown an old mansion where decades previously another band, Dream Machine, tried writing their latest album, but all died when the lead of the band went insane. Impressed by the acoustics of the main room, Dave Grohl insists on them spending weeks living in the house and getting inspiration. However, a dark presence appears to be having an effect on Grohl. Studio 666 is a gory splatterfest of a horror movie with a healthy dollop of comedy and a fair bit of rock throughout. It's a clear love letter to the horror genre and it follows the tropes and it's kind of formulaic, but who cares when it's having so much fun? Now, I do need to make clear that some of the fun definitely comes from being a fan of the band themselves. And whilst not essential in order to enjoy the film overall, knowing the personalities of the group definitely allows for more fun to be had as they mock their personas and throw in a few jokes at their own expense. The acting from the band is a mixed bag. Grohl is central to it all and definitely has a presence on screen, being a strong linchpin to hang the rest on. Taylor Hawkins, Nate Mendel, Chris Shiflett and Rami Jaffe are okay, sometimes hitting the mark, sometimes not quite. Weakest of the bunch is Pat Smear, who seems to be lost and confused for quite a lot of the film. An awkwardly uncomfortable presence on screen. But even he, by the end, proves to be fun thanks to having the perfect screen for a horror film. I had a blast with this film. And I can definitely see in it being one that I'm going to add to my physical collection down the line for revisits. Again, being a fan of the band and a fan of horror combines perfectly for a slice of fun that, whilst it does sag towards the end, still packs a deadly punch. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't get to see it. Um, my other half is a huge, she's an absolute huge Foo Fighters Dave Grohl fan. So uh, it was disappointing that we we couldn't make it out this particular weekend. And it's on a limited release so we've got to choose our times for it but i am i'm really looking forward to it i really really do want to see it so from dave Grohl and the foo fighters to completely contrasting style of film and we have the british comedy biopic the duke will the defendant please stand kempton bunton you were charged that on the 21st of march 1961 you stole from the National Gallery a priceless portrait of the Duke of Wellington by Francisco José de Goya. Not very good, is it? We're convinced that the Goya has been stolen by a highly professional international criminal gang. Mind your boomers! 
Almost certainly a trained commando. <laughs> You're right. Bitter biscuit. One problem. What's that? Your mother. I can explain. I'm shaking. It's the shock. Shock, yes. I'm shocked there's a stolen masterpiece in my wardrobe. Directed by Roger Mitchell before he sadly passed away last year. This film was originally due for release in the back end of 2020, but the pandemic delays held it off. And that's a shame because the director didn't get to see his final work released to the world. The Duke is based on the true story of Kempton Bunton, a British pensioner and campaigner for free TV licences for the elderly, who was involved in the theft of Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington back in 61. The film takes the usual liberties in storytelling, altering small details, but does so to deliver a charming, heartfelt biopic about a rather eccentric real-life underdog. The cast are certainly worth a mention here, with all the support cast standing proud, but the two leads, Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren, as Roger and his long-suffering wife, are an absolute delight throughout. It's through the affable charm of this pair that the film carries itself, even during the moments where it would otherwise sag. Broadbent as Roger is full of northern wit and comical protests, playing it to the hilt once the courtroom scenes begin. Mirren sometimes smartly underplays a role to allow the part of Dorothy to be multifaceted when she steps up her frustrations at Roger's actions. But it's always sharply witty and magnificent to watch, and the pair, when on screen together, show a very honest depiction of decades-long loving relationship, frustrations, disagreements, but with occasional moments of warmth that show you how perfect they are for each other. Without those two prominent leads, the film would have just felt a bit too simple British. And indeed, if you were to list off an idea of all the elements that make for a charmingly traditional British film, you'd end up with the framework for the Duke. But it is warm. It is fun. It is genuinely funny. And it makes for a pleasant afternoon viewing. This gives me a kind of Ealing Cinema sort of vibe to it. So uh, I'm, I'm interested. I'll, I'll probably wait for streaming on this one. But uh, I have heard good things about it. And as I said, if it gives me that Ealing vibe, then then that, that's me in, basically. So landed last week on Sky Movies. I've got round to watching it this week. And that's Soderbergh's latest sci-fi, Kimmy. I'm a voice stream interpreter. I may have heard a crime on one of the streams. The devices pick up lots of things. Just mark this degraded audio and delete it. I am not capable and you know it. I think a woman might need help. How do I find out who she is? You need a device number and the admin code. Will you make me one? This is the last favor, Cognis. Close your files, come to my office. We'll listen to the recordings together. Miss Childs, I have to know what we're dealing with. We're dealing with what sounds like a premeditated murder. How do I know that? Because I just told you. Twice now. Steven Soderbergh's latest release, straight to HBO Max in the US and available on Sky Movies in the UK, is Kimmy, which sees Zoe Kravitz play Angela, an employee of a high-tech firm who works from home scanning snippets of data streams for the company's home assistant AI. Confined to her home due to crippling agoraphobia after having been assaulted in the past, which was compounded by the impact of the pandemic on the world, working from home serves her purposes well. That is, until she hears a fragment of data that sounds like an assault, prompting her to try to find out who was attacked and bring the incident to light. With elements of Hitchcock's rear window crossed with De Palma's blowout, the film offers a nice modern take on the anxiety-driven suspense genre, neatly drawing anxieties about the modern world, COVID, surveillance, technology, throwing them into the mix. 
Soderbergh keeps the basic plot line as straightforward as possible. The twists and turns will not surprise anyone fluent in movie tropes, but it allows for a tightly paced thriller that is bolstered by the standout presence of Kravitz. Kravitz's character is so well fleshed out with backstory that even before she intercepts the scrambled message, you find yourself simply engaging with her personally. Indeed, I'd have happily watched her go about her daily routines for the full runtime without any of the generic thriller plot. Kravitz just brings an energy and grounded believability to her roles, and here she really captivates. That's not to say that the film drags once the thriller begins, far from the case, but again, it's because we're so invested in Kravitz by that point that we care enough to forgive the cliche-riddled latter half of the film. Slickly directed and doesn't outstay its welcome, Kimmy is another example of why Soderbergh will always intrigue me, and another great star turn from Kravitz. He, he does. He, he knows how to play with genre. He's got a way of making genre yeah. movies feel fresh. He did it with the Oceans films. He did it with his take on Solaris. He takes genre staples and brings something, his own twist to it. Sometimes it works amazingly. Sometimes it doesn't quite land, but he, he knows how to do that. I'm a great fan of his work. Don't always like it, but I'm always a fan of his work. And lastly, Andy. And finally, we've got The Desperate Hour, which landed on Sky Movies this week. And this is that dreaded three words, a oh, Sky, Sky original. original. Does it does it, uh, does it rattle you? And you know what? It's okay. I don't have a car and I'm five miles from home. Marion County has been placed on lockdown due to an ongoing incident. Tell me what's it's, happening. It's bad. There are five people barricaded. Your son is one of them. Mrs. Carr, this is Detective Ed Paulson. There's been a new development. Noah! Mom! Where are you? Help! I'm coming to get you, honey. Who's here? I'm scared. Noah, don't... Nicole Kidman is a widow whose bond with her son has become fractured through the grief they both have. Leaving him alone one morning to go for a run, her plans for the day are ironed out as she makes calls and receives calls whilst on the run. However, she then gets a call that changes everything as she finds out that her son's school has been hit with a shooter attack and her son may be involved. What follows is a real-time single-actor performance as she tries desperately to get to the town, feeling stranded and isolated in the woodlands that she went for a run through. For the first half of the film, the setup of daily life, the slow build to something being out of place and the initial panic as she tries desperately to find out information via texts and calls is solidly played. Her isolation feels real, as does her desperate attempts to find out what is happening. Kidman gives her all and she's mesmerising and impossible to not care for the plight of. But then, as the film passes the halfway mark, it slips and it starts to become mawkishly formulaic and somewhat TV movie of the week-esque, which hampers the proceedings somewhat. Kidman remains strong, however, just enough to redeem the failings of the film. But the end result is a short, well-conceived and well-acted film that kind of loses the momentum, making for immediately forgettable experience. Uh, I'm not bothered. When we're talking about what else is out, is there anything else out other than the Batman? Not many big things are going up going up against the Batman, but in a nice sense of counter-programming, uh, Ali and Ava lands at cinemas this week, and also Godfather came out last week yeah. to celebrate its anniversary. See Godfather this. Part 2 is on a limited release across the UK this coming week. Excellent. On Netflix, we've got Night Ride, which is a single-take thriller about a dealer trying to pull off one last job. On Amazon... There's a documentary directed by Amy Poehler called Lucy and Desi, 
which is about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Picard Season 2 lands. And The Boys Diabolical Animated Series also lands on Amazon. Yeah, looking week. forward to this. And on Disney+, Plus, the rewatch that I'm pretty sure that you're going to be delving into yeah, as, well, as well as me. West Side Story lands on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, my other half week. didn't see it. And uh, I can't wait to sit down next weekend and watch it with her. Uh, so before we go, we do this every week. We tell you our neat things, things that we've enjoyed over the last week, whether they be a movie, TV series, a slice of cake. We'll tell you about it because to us, it's pretty neat. Andy, your neat thing, please. So my neat thing for this week, and this is going to be partly responsible for my neat thing next week. No spoilers. There's an app that my sister mentioned to me just over two weeks ago, which is one of those surveys apps. It puts you in touch with different survey companies that you get small rewards for completing surveys. And that's QME, Q-M-E-E. And I I generally think that usually, you know, you do about 400 surveys and you get £5.20. And it's like, is this worth it? In the space of two weeks, I accumulated over £30 worth of credit from just doing surveys while sat on the bus to and from work. It was not taking any time out of my day because I was sat on the bus to and from work. What else am I going to do? And I accumulated £30, which I've put towards what's going to be my neat thing next week. No spoilers. But yeah, it, it's great. I'm still using it now. And it's a great way that if you have th- those commutes or you have like those times of the day where you're just sat and you're just, eh, there's not really anything to do, or you're half watching TV, but you're not really interested, tap away, jump on there. It presents you with a bunch of surveys. And if you pass the criteria, the rewards are anything from like seven pence up to some of them being £1.53, £1.70. And like I say, 30 quid within two weeks. And I've hardly actually used it. It's a great app. It's free to use. And yes, it's not a, it's not a con because the money does go into your bank because I've got my money in my bank now. You can transfer it through PayPal onto your own bank account or you can get it back in the form of gift vouchers or rewards in other ways. It's a great little app. Well recommended. That's QMe. I've got it on Android. I'm not sure if it's available on Apple. Okay, that sounds good. Mine's related to Apple, to Apple Plus TV, which we've talked about many times. The fact that while they don't have a huge catalogue of of, uh, TV shows or movies, what they do have pretty usually is great content. They've got Mm. the quality uh, and they know where to throw all the money. So I've been hearing good things about this and I decided to jump in. And that is After Party. So it's a pretty easy setup. It's a half hour-ish comedy about, trust me, it's a comedy, a murder mystery. So what we've got is a high school reunion. 15 years later, a group of classmates get together for this reunion. Amongst them is Xavier, formerly known as Eugene, now a famous pop star actor in the Justin Bieber kind of way. Um, and his sole purpose seems to be mess the heads of, of the people he went to school with his old, old friends. Played by uh, Dave Franco, who's probably the most recognisable out of all the cast. To give nothing away, Xavier is killed in the first two minutes of the show. And then we get a setup in which a detective basically interviews and investigates the whodunit by talking to each of the uh, uh, partygoers who have all got, shall we say, a motive to wanting to kill Xavier. Okay, so we've been there before, nothing new. What makes this show work is that each episode adopts a new genre to tell the story. So whenever a character tells their story, it's told in the style of of the film in their head. So we've got uh, a a kind of a 
horror movie version. We've got a high school John Hughes sort of version of it. We've got a, a Joel Silver take, a Lethal Weapon-esque take on it. We've got a, a musical episode, which was so well done, kind of a throw to Hamilton. We've got an animated version. And each one of those stories is an insight into the character, an insight into the crime. And it's darn good fun. It's brought to us by Chris Miller and Phil Lord. Yes, those of the Lego movie and 21 Jump Street. And it shows uh, because it just has their it has their quality that they bring to it. A slightly off the wall approach. And it's kind of an undemanding eight part murder mystery series, which is a lot of fun. So that's the after party on Apple TV. Give it a go. And that, folks, is it for this week. And we'll be back again next week with another film file. In the meantime, Andy, what have you got planned? Well, the rest of my week off includes my birthday and... Happy um, birthday, Andy. I hope you get everything that you wish for. World peace would be uh, one thing. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I've, I've not really got any major plans. I'm doing some editing and some tweaking of some of the video content that I meant to get round for. So there's some of that going to be dropping on the YouTube channel over this coming week. And I might actually get round to recording the next few episodes of the My Life in Film for the YouTube channel. Because I've got all this time and I don't know what to do with it until Batman comes out. Fantastic. Well, hopefully, Andy, I'll see you for the Batman. Uh, we'll see you again next week, folks. Always a pleasure. But before we go, I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favour. I want you to tell all your friends about me.